0: As we continue in worship this evening, I invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Our text this evening is just the 13th verse, um, what we call the Sixth Commandment. But I'll read the entire second table of the law that you find there in verses 12 to 17. And so beloved, hear once again the holy word of the living God. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass. Nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Amen. Beloved, I think as we come to the law of God, um, not only with regard to the second table, but I think in many ways, especially with regard to the second table, I think we find a society that would say, generally speaking, the guidance that we have here is good. That many would say, verses 12 to 17 present to us things that even the unbeliever could recognize is worthwhile, even necessary for a well-ordered society. But friend, as we look at this text... I want to remind you how the scriptures make use of this law. You see, when, when the, the, the as if you like, the moral atheist looks at what he has here, he, he looks at the bare words in front of him, and he says essentially that these things, as they stand black and white in front of him, without any further contem- contemplation, these things are good, and he'll go another step and he'll say he's kept them. He will say genuinely that he has fulfilled these things. If you've, don't, if you've never met such a person, uh, friend, I would encourage you to talk to folks because they'll say this to you. There are those who would say that as they look at the law in front of them this evening, it's in front of us this evening rather, they would say they've kept it. But Beloved, you remember how the Lord himself uses this law how he takes it up in his own ministry and he shows that the Pharisees had a very similar approach to these words. They looked at the bare letter and they thought that they were fine as long as as long as long their externals seemingly conformed to what they saw in the law, they were fine. As though the law, according to God's accounting, only pertained to the externals. And beloved, I would submit to you that many, even within the church, have a very similar view of these words. Especially when it comes to our text this evening. Thou shalt not kill. Obviously, of course, the law here is dealing with the unlawful taking of human life. Uh, this is not, of course, a call that we are not to kill the lesser creatures in lawful uses. And this is not, this is not condemning the rightful, use of the civil sword. We have here a simple command. There is to be no unlawful taking of human life. But this evening as we look at this text and as we take the rest of Scripture to really shine upon us, upon our reading here, what the Word of God intends, we'll see that there is so much more than what the moral atheist sees. So much more in the sixth commandment than what the Pharisees saw. And so, beloved, what I want us to see this evening as we begin is that, first of all, this is a command put positively, a command that you and I are to preserve life by all lawful means. You and I are to preserve life by all lawful means. And this pertains to all human life. And so, allow me just to take you through the scriptures briefly this evening and show you how the scriptures define for us this kind of preservation. I want you to notice, first of all, that of course, murder, murder of our neighbor is expressly prohibited. But we can go a step further. Beloved, as you look throughout the scriptures, murder is presented here, of course, as an evil. But it's an evil that pollutes an entire people. To illustrate this, just allow me to remind you what you find in Numbers 35. You shall not pollute the land wherein you are. For blood, it defileth the land. And the land cannot be cleansed of the blood that is shed therein, but by the blood of him that shed it. A friend immediately confronted with a biblical reality that largely is denied in the world today. Everybody will grant that murder is an evil. But the word of God teaches us that murder is such an evil that it pollutes the whole land and the only way to undo that pollution is by capital and public punishment. The execution of the murderer. Friend, I didn't expect to say anything controversial this evening, but the fact of the matter is the word of God is quite clear. Murder is such a heinous crime before the Lord, that a whole people are regarded as polluted if murderers walk our streets. And in fact, beloved, that doesn't change in the New Testament. The civil magistrate in Romans 13 is given a sword, social worker. And so, beloved, as you look at this text, you and I are reminded now That how we look at murder and how the Bible looks at murder is not the same way the moral atheist looks at murder. You see, according to the word of God, murder is such a stain on society that it must be dealt with capitally and publicly. But we can go a step further. It's not just murder. According to the scriptures, if thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death, that is unlawfully, and those that are ready to be slain, Shall not God render to every man according to his works? Now the word of God goes a step further. When we apply these words, thou shalt not kill, the law comes to us and says, by the way, that's not just. That's not just pertaining to the unlawful positive act of murder. But if you see someone who is unlawfully being oppressed by the sword, and you don't do anything to prevent it, the the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, shall not God render unto you, the very self-same thing. And beloved, as you look at this text, of course it goes even further. We will see this in just a moment, but the idea of preservation of life not only pertains to, to our need to stand in the place and defend those who cannot defend themselves in a lawful cause, but it goes even further. This also demands that you and I are liberal, in our dealings with our fellow creatures, seeking and genuinely to preserve their lives as much as lies within our power. Otherwise, beloved, you and I are not preserving life as we ought to be. But those are physical elements to this command. Let me let me go a step further and, and show you just for a moment how, how this command also even pertains to our speech. In Proverbs 12, we're told this. He says, those... Those who are quick to be talebearers, they speak like the piercings of a sword. He says their usage of words, that their loose talking about their neighbors, is like a sword, like something, like an instrument used to exterminate a life. And as you look throughout the scriptures, the idea is, is that somebody who is quick to spread abroad rumors about others, quick to expose the sins of others to other people. The idea is that they're quick to murder a good name. And, beloved, that too falls under this category, and we'll see that just in a moment. Because those who do so, as James tells us, have a tongue that are full of deadly poison. Again, the Scriptures liken the tongue to an instrument of murder. Liken speech to a violation of the Sixth Commandment. But friend, again, as we take the Scriptures to illuminate this text for us, we can go a step further still. When speaking to the preacher, God says, When I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning to save his life. The same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thy hand. What God says to the preacher is that his neighbor's blood, the, the man whom he was supposed to warn, and, and of course we're speaking here of eternal perdition, the man who he was supposed to warn to flee from the wrath to come, if the preacher fails to warn that man, God treats the preacher, as though he were a murderer. That's the same kind of language that's in view here. And so the scriptures speak about spiritual negligence on the part of pastors as an act of murder. And we can go a step further. You remember in 1 Samuel 25, David positively, David positively thanks Abigail for her advice to, to, to not slay Nabal as, as David was inclined to. And you remember what he says. He says, Blessed be thy advice and blessed be thou which hast kept me this day from coming to shed blood. In other words, he's saying Abigail's warning to him, urging him not to sin, has kept him from the guilt of murder. And that's in a very positive sense. But it's not just, beloved, it's not just the case that, that those who who speak against a murderous inclination, are those who are preserving life. We can extend it further, because the law does. Leviticus 19.17 Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor, and shalt not suffer sin upon him. Beloved, what that is telling us is, if we have seen sin in somebody ourselves, it is hatred for our brother. It is hatred for our brother and so a virtual act of murder to not reprove him as we see it ourselves and as we're in a position of responsibility to do so. In God's account, beloved, according to the word of God itself, all of those, all of those pertain to the sixth commandment. But again, as we've said before, we can't read the law as the Pharisees or as the moral atheist. We have to go a step further, and beloved, this law then pertains to the heart. As John reminds us, whoso hateth his brother is a murderer. It's a violation of the Sixth Commandment. According to the Word of God, it is a violation of the Sixth Commandment to bear hate. There is no way to to properly expound this 13th verse of Exodus 20 says John, without also including hatred. A step further, beloved, and more positively, it is a fruit of righteousness then, if we're found to be those who sow in peace. In other words, what the scriptures say, if we are of an inclination and bent to make peace and not hatred, beloved, that is a sincere keeping of the sixth commandment. Now, we will come to an application just briefly, but friend, let me just remind you here that this is precisely the work of the law. The work of the law is to leave all men silent before God. It's what the apostle tells us in Romans 3. And, Christian, surely then, when you hear the words, from again, that, that moral person at the bus stop, at the grocery store. I'm a, I'm a good person, I've never killed anyone. Beloved, a, a quick survey of the scriptures that we've just had in view certainly tell us that that kind of thinking is dreadfully misguided. In the eyes of the world, they may not be seen a murderer. Yes, that's true. But is that so in the eyes of God? Beloved, can any of us in this room this evening, can any of us say that we've kept even this command? But not only does it pertain to our neighbor's life, but friend, it also pertains to our own. And briefly, I just want to show you this from the scriptures again. All of life is to be preserved here. Our neighbors, but necessarily then also ourselves. In fact, as the scriptures present this idea to us, it grounds the preservation of our neighbor's life in our own self-preservation. For example, when Christ says, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, repeating Leviticus 18, that is the ground of our preserving our neighbor. That there must be some real and congenital effort to preserve our own lives. And so how do the scriptures present that to us? Well, Fred, I want, I want you to notice first of all, and again, these are waters that are terribly troubled in our generation but but this tells us that suicides are not martyrs friend I, I need to say that to you because we live in a generation increasingly that has made them out to be so it 's not the unforgivable sin, and we shouldn 't go to that extreme at all. But we also need to be very clear it is a violation of the sixth commandment, and as our older as our older writers would remind us because of all of the aggravations that it's involved, it's even greater a sin, more aggravated in its guilt than the taking away of our neighbor's life. Not only does it prohibit suicide, it also enjoins for you and for me a moderate use of all of those things that are for our preservation. So drink, food, and even anxiety. Take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting, and drunkenness and cares of the life of this life. Christ is saying very pointedly, the way the proper preservation of your own life consists in a moderate use of all of these things, a moderate care for the things of this world, a moderate use of drink and of food. Of course, then, beloved, that includes the redeeming of time. It includes with it also a moderate use of recreation. Now, all of these aspects are those things that accrue to the preservation of one's life. But allow me to go a step further. Just as we said with regard to our neighbor, the word of God expands this category for us by even touching our words with regard to our own lives. uh, Friend, you remember how Job puts it. Let the day perish wherein I was born and the night in which it was said there is a man-child conceived. Most older men, when they look at the book of Job, say that of all the things Job repents of, he repents of these expressions as well. In other words, his own words in this case, as it were, are complaining against God for giving him life as though its preservation were an evil. And beloved, you remember how Job repents. He repents for us in an exemplary way, a way that you and I are to follow but in a way that reminds us that this too is an evil. So again, beloved, we can apply this to the soul, can't we? Cast away from you all your transgressions whereby ye have transgressed and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? Beloved, when men don't take any concern for their souls... They are soul murderers, even of themselves. That's how the Lord comes to Israel in in this text, Ezekiel 18. He says, if you die, the guilt falls upon you, O house of Israel. The way of life has been opened, yes, but if you persist, if, if you take no thought for your soul and you die, over all of that, friend, are these words, why will you? It's a condemnation of their lack of spiritual interest. And, beloved, you remember that the use of spiritual means, the use of the means of grace, it is, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 12, the drawing water out of the wells of salvation. That is the wells of life. And so even the use of the means of grace to the sustaining of our soul and its nourishment, beloved, even those things certainly fall into this category. We are to preserve life in every regard. And so we are to cherish life. And that brings us to our second point. Uh, Our first point was really to set before us the substance of this command, but the second point is really to set before us its reason. And and beloved, there's a basic principle that lies behind the sixth commandment that I know we know. I mean, it's largely a truism. It's something that that we we say that that the world says that if you talk to anybody on the street they'll nod if you if you if you bring this to them, and that is that life itself is precious. Life is precious, and so it must be preserved. Again, friend, you and I we would hardly find we would hardly find even even a moderately self-professed moral unbeliever. Uh, disagreeing with us there. But for the Christian, that means so much more. And I want us to think about that just briefly. Friend, when the believer in Scripture thinks about life, how, how does he do it? I want you to think first in terms of creation. Words that are well known to us. Psalm 139, I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, again, words known to us well, but there's connection. He is induced to worship God because he sees in his own existence and in the imparting of life to him glory, reason to extol the Lord. And beloved, I don't know about you, but that, that hardly is communicated to us these days. Psalm 100, again, another very famous text. It is He that hath made us, and not we ourselves. And the entailment of all of that is, therefore we praise Him. I'm pulling all of these things together, friend, to communicate to you that, that the believers in Scripture make use of the fact that they have life as creatures, as a cause to worship God. It is something that God has imparted. They regard life as something God has imparted and a precious gift. In fact, the ground of all of their other gifts that they may receive from God. I'm belaboring the point, but I, I think I need to. Friend, because I, I think in many ways evangelicals of all people have almost forgotten this. We, we, are, we are doubly indebted to God. It was of God that He imparted life to us as Creator. And as we've seen just from these two texts, a gift that should induce our praise. We, as Christians, should regard the imparting of human life as something incredibly precious that should induce worship. And then when we think, secondarily, that He has imparted life to us who are in, uni- who are in union with Christ then we are doubly indebted. Doubly indebted to God for both gifts. I would submit to you, friend, that 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 really will only heighten our sense sense of thanksgiving and our sense of, of obligation to the Lord if we meditate on the fact that as Creator and Redeemer we are unspeakably, unspeakably tied to Him in terms of debt. We can go a step further, again, as Christians. Created imago die that is, in the image of God. What does that mean? James, as we read in James 3, puts it to us this way. He was made in the similitude of God. And what's striking is James is referring to man even after the fall. That image was radically shattered, but not eradicated. That image was broken, but not utterly or entirely removed. And so, in Genesis 9, when when the Lord comes to Noah and brings to him this precept, note the precept and its ground. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. Why is murder so heinous, such, such that it requires capital and public punishment, because man remains in the image of God even after the flood not only after the fall and friend again these are truisms things that you and I nod our heads to but do you contemplate what that means how precious then is human life thirdly friend it also is a recognition of divine sovereignty When you and I regard life as precious, what we are really saying is that unto God, the Lord, belong the issues of death. It is a gift of his own imparting. It's a gift that is precious that could only come from his own handiwork. And so it is a gift that is entirely and only at God's disposal. And so we regard it with that kind of serenity and solemnity that we need to. Acknowledging these truths. Uh, friend, I've already elaborated here at, at length the evils of, of suicide, but this obviously extends to abortion and euthanasia. As Christians, friend, those things should grip us. They should grip us. Uh, but we'll come back to that in just a moment. Our third and our final point this evening is that we see in Scripture exercise of these very principles. Positively we see it sincerely in the church, at Corinth, church in Macedonia. You remember that there the Macedonians took up a collection for their brothers and their sisters in Jerusalem who were suffering persecution. Now that collection was important, not only because of course it was furthering the work of the gospel and not only would it go to also to, to pay those preachers so that they could continue to preach but it was given so that the needs of the lives of their fellow believers would be sustained. And friend, note how the apostle describes this to them. As he describes this work, he says this. He says, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit the, of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. Right, I'm just going to, I'm, I'm going to leave this text as it stands. What Paul says to them, just very briefly, is that these Macedonians, they gave so willingly for the preservation of their brothers and their sisters in Christ. Such that two things abounded. Their thanksgiving, first of all, that they had such an opportunity. But then isn't it interesting what the apostle then says? He says, and also their poverty abounded because of it. They gave sacrificially, Paul says. And they gave so willingly. And I want, to, I want to iterate this as well. They gave so silently. Paul has to tell the church at Corinth this. The Macedonians weren't publishing these things. Their liberality was self-sacrificial. Their liberality was joyful. And their liberality was silent. That's the picture of this earnest preservation of human life that you see in the church. But but friend, we obviously we can't stop there. We go, of course, to the perfect fulfillment of this in Christ. God appointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. You know, it's a staggering thing, isn't it, that those miracles that Christ wrought to demonstrate his majesty and his sovereignty were miracles, by and large, to preserve human life beloved he could have manifested all kinds of power all kinds of glory through any number of other means but the means that christ was so pleased to employ was the pres- was the, were those means that would most preserve and most support life it's a staggering statement when you think about it how, how we see the glory of God revealed as the God-man shows us what a normal human being is, or is always supposed to be. One who counted life precious. One who regarded, who regarded the lives of other men something to be preserved. You know, what's staggering Christian is that this is part and parcel of basic Christianity, I don't know if you know this, but early Christians really were the foundation of orphanages. You see, in ancient Rome, and obviously cultures beyond Rome as well, the the practice of of the paterfamilias, the head of a home, was that if he had a child born in his home, and that child was either a, a, a daughter and he didn't want a girl, or that child had some issue, physical issue with it, it was socially acceptable, even expected, that 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 father would set the child outside that evening in a basket to be taken by the elements, typically by the dogs that ran the streets. And Christians, who were then being persecuted from one Roman province to another, Every night, they would go out, even though their own lives were in peril, they would go out and they would take every child that they could. And they had not much to offer them. They themselves were being hunted and harried by Roman persecutors. But they went out and they grabbed these children, brought them into their own care, provided for them from their own wealth and the lack thereof. And therein we have orphanages. That was the foundation of the practice that you and I know so well. But friend, I want you to notice where that begins. It begins as the church now demonstrates a real and a new sense of the purity, not of the purity, but the preciousness of life. This is what it looks like, beloved, to, to be made more into the likeness of Christ. But friend, I know I'm preaching to the choir. How does this law search us? Friend, as I've thought about this text this week, I would say one of the things that has struck me most is that if I were to go into an evangelical church and I were to say, we need to stand against abortion, euthanasia, and all of the above, I, I imagine by and large throughout the province, I would get vocal amens, but there is there is something that the world says in response to our efforts that I, I wonder if we've heard heard it right. You see, if you if you talk to anyone, if you've, if you've been involved at all with street work with regard to abortion, and, and you you really get a, a conversation with somebody, I, I think what I heard once probably probably have been repeated elsewhere. You see, somebody, somebody had noted that this was a real drive in the church to, to really campaign against abortion. And they said, you're doing this because you love your neighbor and you say that that child, the unborn child, is your neighbor. Of course, we nod to that. But sure, you cut up your neighbor with your tongue, don't you? The person who had said that was talking about his own interactions with another church where he knew that there were those going around spreading rumors about each other, spreading rumors about those in the community, and they were out on the picket line in front of the abortion clinic. And here's what he said. You're here because you supposedly love your neighbor, and yet you kill him with your own words. Friend, that obviously doesn't justify any of the world's responses to our, our urgings for abortion to be eliminated. But I wonder, friend, I, I wonder if that's something we can take on board. The second thing I want us to notice as we close is that in this text, you and I are reminded that God is one who imparts and who loves life. And beloved, that is to our comfort. There there are those who I think so often forget that, but our God actually loves to impart and would urge his people to preserve life as a precious thing. And so, Christian, you and I are to remember the source of all of those things, the good things that life brings, as being sourced from God, a God who is pleased to give such good things and such life. And beloved, if all of those things are true that we've considered this evening, we close with this. That this commandment really should urge us to make use of even something so basic and fundamental as our own existence. To urge our thanksgiving. We see that in the scriptures. We see that all throughout the word of God. And yet it's something I think we we so seldom engage in. There are those... Friend who would say that they are thankful to God for the life that they have but, but does it induce praise? Does it induce them to a life of, of thanksgiving? That is a life of, of obedience and a sense of indebtedness. You see this commandment reminds us that it's actual holiness to make use of the most common things to drive our worship and to induce our love to God. But I also want you to notice, beloved, as we close, that I don't. If you're like me and you've seen in this much that exposes your own failings, how do we respond to this, beloved? The answer the answer to that question has to be that we do look to Him who has perfectly kept it. The answer to all of this is that you and I you and I hear the rigor of the law as it is there and that you and I run to the only one, he who is the perfect man who can lead us, teach us to indeed do as we are commanded here. To be those who make use of all lawful means to the preservation of life as a precious gift from God. May the Lord lead us in these things as we seek him through Christ. Amen.